Good evening, I'm Amna Nawaz. And I'm Jeff Bennett. On the News Hour tonight, on the eve of the two-year anniversary of Russia's invasion of Ukraine, we speak to a top State Department official and a Ukrainian soldier about the state of the war. We have nothing to lose because, like, if, uh, if we will lose this war, we will lose, like, everything. Our freedom, our country, our lives. The boyfriend of a dual Russian-American citizen speaks out after she was arrested in Russia on charges of treason. And with Nikki Haley struggling to close the gap with former President Donald Trump, a look ahead to tomorrow's South Carolina Republican primary. Welcome to the News Hour. The Biden administration today unveiled a new set of sanctions against Russia to punish it further for the full-scale invasion of Ukraine that began two years ago tomorrow. The sanctions are also meant to target Russia for the death of anti-corruption activist and politician Alexei Navalny. He died in an Arctic prison one week ago from a cause still unknown. Earlier today, I spoke with U.S. Undersecretary of State for Political Affairs, Victoria Nuland, about the state of the war two years on. Victoria Nuland, welcome back to the News Hour. Thank you, Jeff. Great to be with you. As the world prepares to mark the second anniversary of Putin's Ukraine invasion, Ukraine's counteroffensive has stalled. Ukraine lost a brutal months-long battle for Avdivka. Additional funding, as you well know, is, is stuck in the GOP-led House. And Russia is showing no signs of quitting. What is the outlook for Ukraine right now? Well, Jeff, you are not wrong that these are tough days for Ukraine. Uh, and as you said, they've had to come out of Avdiyevka. When I was out there a couple of weeks ago, there were soldiers on the front line with only 20 bullets a day to defend themselves. And this is why the administration is pushing so hard for this additional $60 billion to support Ukraine. Uh, because uh, the Ukrainians need it if they're going to continue to defend the line and push back the Russians. But with this money, we actually think that they can make some serious gains in 2024, uh, particularly by enhancing some of the asymmetric techniques that they have been using. Um, but we need to support them, just as the Europeans have just given them an additional $54 billion. Well, so far, House Speaker Mike Johnson has refused to bring up a Senate-passed uh, package, at least for a quick vote. If, is there a way for the administration to get that much-needed aid to Ukraine absent action from Congress? Jeff, I would just start by reminding that uh, this bill passed overwhelmingly in the Senate. Seventy senators supported it. Uh, and they supported it because they understand that as much as this is about Ukraine's ability to survive as a democratic state. It is also about the larger principles of a free and open international order that benefits the United States. And that if we don't stand with Ukraine, if Putin wins here, then dictators and tyrants all over the world uh, will take note and will uh, get hungry with their own uh, territorial aspirations. So we need to pass this money, and the American people broadly understand that. So we are hopeful that they will tell their members when they're home uh, during this recess uh, how much they support this, this money, and, and uh, we are confident that it will pass. President Biden today announced more than 500 sanctions on Russia. This is the largest tranche since the conflict started. 
Is this a tacit admission that the previous sanctions haven't worked, what with Russia's military-industrial complex up and running and seemingly drawing on limitless supplies and support from its authoritarian allies? Well, let me start with your premise, Jeff, that previous sanctions haven't worked. Russia has become a pariah state around the world, thrown out of the international banking system, and now so desperate for weapons that it has to go to countries like Iran and North Korea uh, to get them. But those Russians are wily, and they have, over the last six months, found ways to evade sanctions. But we've also got smarter about how to hurt them, and that's why uh, this package is so massive. It looks at um, punishing sanctions evaders. It looks at closing down further uh, Russia's access to credit and finance. It also um, punishes for the death of the leading opposition figure, Navalny, um, at the hands of uh, Putin and his present guards. And it sanctions uh, those involved in the abduction of Ukrainian children into Russia. So it is a massive package. And partly it's because we've got to staunch this evasion and because um, we have far more targets now as we understand better how to staunch the Russian industrial complex. Why should it, though, take an event like the death of Alexei Navalny to prompt these types of sanctions? Couldn't some of this have happened two years ago, at least to stop the flow of technology into Russia's military industrial complex that goes into building the kinds of missiles that kill Ukrainians? Jeff, we did sanction technology uh, from around the world as uh, two years ago, just before and after the invasion. What has happened is that Russia's found ways to evade those sanctions, going to third markets or buying, you know, for example, a billion washing machines and then taking out the computer chips that we've denied them in other ways. So this is a tightening of those sanctions as Russia adjusts, and we're confident that they're going to have a very profound impact. But the other thing that's happening, and this is uh, quite worrying, is that Russia has been willing to intensify its economic and security relationship with China, in fact, becoming uh, increasingly dependent on China. Uh, and that is how it is uh, fueling its war machine. It's also been willing to put the vast majority of its own uh, economic stimulus into the war effort. So it is starving Russia and Russians of investment in uh, education, in their own future, all in service of Putin's imperial ambitions. So what we are having to do is adjust as well. As we wrap up our conversation, you said you're confident that the aid package will ultimately pass Congress. There is this question, though, of what good would additional aid do, especially among those who view this as a war of attrition and point to the slow progress of Ukraine's counteroffensive. If the U.S. continues to provide Ukraine the same sorts of weapons, why wouldn't that lead to a further stalemate? First of all, uh, this aid is going to allow Ukraine to do four things. It's going to allow them to continue to fight. It's going to allow them to build a highly deterrent military of the future so that they will increasingly be able to stand on their own feet in security terms. It's going to help them recover and get more of their own people home and rebuild their tax base uh, so that uh, we have there's less um, economic support that they need from uh, the rest of the world. And it's also going to help them reform and become a more European democratic country. 
With this money on the battlefield, first and foremost, it will ensure Ukraine can hold the line. But as I said, they're getting increasingly proficient at asymmetric weapons. And I expect, um, as I said in Kiev a couple of weeks ago when I was there, that if we can provide this support, uh, Putin's going to get some very nasty surprises on the battlefield in 2024, in addition to Ukraine being able to really rebuild uh, a 21st century military. Victoria Newland is the Undersecretary of State for Political Affairs at the U.S. State Department. Thank you for your time and for your insights this evening. Thank you, Jeff. In the day's other headlines, Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer made a surprise visit to Ukraine to reaffirm America's support for the war effort. The trip came as a $60 billion bipartisan aid bill for Ukraine remained stalled in the House after passing in the Senate. Schumer was joined by four other Democratic senators. They met with President Volodymyr Zelensky and U.S. Embassy staff in Lviv. In the Middle East, Palestinian leaders are rejecting Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu's proposed post-war plan for Gaza. Presented late yesterday, it seeks open-ended control over security and civilian affairs in the Strip. In the meantime, officials in Gaza say IDF airstrikes have killed at least 100 Palestinians since yesterday. A survivor described one horrifying overnight attack in Rafah. We were sleeping. We woke up to the sound of the bombardment. We rushed to find the remains of people scattered in the streets, smoke and gunpowder. It was terrifying. The homes shook. We stayed at the hospital until the morning. Meanwhile, U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken condemned the expansion of Israeli settlements within Palestinian territories. His comments marked a return to a stance the U.S. has held for decades, but had shifted under the Trump administration. New settlements are counterproductive to reaching an enduring peace. Uh, they're also inconsistent with international law. Uh, our administration maintains a firm opposition to settlement expansion, and in our judgment, this only weakens, doesn't strengthen Israel's security. Also today, the U.S. military said they destroyed several Houthi attack drones and anti-ship cruise missiles in the Red Sea and Yemen. They say they posed an imminent threat to commercial vessels and U.S. naval ships. Back in this country, Alabama Governor Kay Ivey says she will support legislation to protect in vitro fertilization treatment in the wake of her state's controversial Supreme Court ruling. Last week's decision maintained that frozen embryos could be considered children under state law. Several clinics have since paused their treatments. The state's attorney general also said he does not intend to prosecute IVF providers or families. A jury in New York has found that the National Rifle Association mismanaged its finances and engaged in lavish spending. It also said that the group's former leader, Wayne LaPierre, violated his duties and cost the NRA more than $5 million. A new report from the U.N.'s Human Rights Office is warning that sexual violence committed during the ongoing conflict in Sudan may amount to war crimes. It cites at least 118 cases of rape or other forms of sexual violence over an eight-month period. The U.N. says at least 19 of the victims were children. The turmoil began last April when clashes broke out between rival forces in Khartoum. 
The U.S. and South Korea staged a show of joint military strength today over the Korean peninsula. It was an apparent response to North Korea's spate of weapons tests. Advanced F-35A fighter jets, many deployed by the U.S., maneuvered through the sky for missile interception drills. The North has launched six rounds of missile tests so far this year. In Kenya, a state funeral was held today for world marathon record holder Kelvin Kiptum. Hundreds of mourners turned out for the 24-year-old burial near his hometown, including Kenyan President William Ruto. Kiptum died in a car crash earlier this month. He broke the world marathon record last October at the Chicago Marathon, running it in just two hours and 35 seconds. And trading was light on Wall Street today. The Dow Jones Industrial Average gained 62 points to close at 39,131, a new record. The Nasdaq fell 45 points, and the S&P 500 added two. Still to come on the News Hour, a look at the dangers of parents promoting their children's content on social media. The Biden campaign works to regain the support of disillusioned Democratic voters. David Brooks and Jonathan Capehart weigh in on the week's political headlines, plus much more. This is the PBS NewsHour from WETA Studios in Washington and in the West from the Walter Cronkite School of Journalism at Arizona State University. Ukraine finds itself in a bloody stalemate on the frozen plains of the country's east and south, now two years into Russia's full-scale invasion. Russian and Ukrainian forces have taken immense losses throughout the war, and now there are calls in Kyiv for a mass mobilization. But many people are answering their own calls to protect their nation and joining up. Nick Schifrin and filmmaker Amanda Bailey in Kyiv introduce us to one of them. On the stage of war, one man plays many parts. And on the streets of Ukraine's capital, Yura is recasting himself. At some point, you're accepting your fate and uh, you just believe. So, uh, like, if you should live, you will live. If no, you, you will die. Before the full-scale invasion, the 28-year-old who asked us to withhold his last name was a snowboard instructor, a tour guide, an IT specialist, a model. But after the invasion, he swapped the suit vest for one that stops bullets. He translated for and drove a human rights watch team into and through the horrors of war to document Russia's crimes. War forever transforms its victims and witnesses. When we came to Bucha, uh, I can remember definitely that smell of rotten bodies. It was like you know, like a horror movie. And I remember that screams of mothers uh, who were recognizing their children. And it was something uh, that you cannot forget. Nothing about this war will be forgotten. In the center of Kyiv, the carcasses of Russian armor are rusting witnesses to Ukrainian courage. All that burned down is because uh, somebody, just like in a distance of 100 or 200 meters, had enough bravery and skill to shoot the rocket. Yura says he now needs to find his own bravery. He's tried to help the war effort in other ways, but Russia now has military momentum. And Yura says too many of his friends are fighting the war outmanned and increasingly outgunned. A lot of them already like two years in this hell, despite the fact maybe that I don't really like feeling like I'm like the warrior. Um, 
I need to start like training, uh, enlisting. In January, he started basic training. It was the first time he'd ever held a gun. I never like expected that at some point of my life I would know how to clean a gun, how to shoot a gun. And actually, I don't want now like to know this if there wouldn't be a war. But I want to protect uh, my country. The country needs him. Ukraine's army is struggling to find new recruits. Some 15,000 have paid to leave the country illegally. New legislation would mobilize some 400,000 more men. Russia has more than that deployed inside Ukraine. From our side, like, like they're the best people of our country. And from their side is criminals, is people with no future. And we are losing our best people. Sometimes you can forget that at night in Kyiv. The city's bars are dark and filled with dark humor that for Yura's friend Slava is an escape from the pain. There's a big chance that he probably gonna die. So at least I hope he will give me his car or something that he have at home <laughs> before he gonna die. <laughs> yeah. But actually, you know, if it's not seriously I'm just, I, I, I'm just tired of, of losing my friends and family. So that's my main thought about this. I don't, I, I don't think that I can say anything more about this. Guys? Loss is a terror that his mother, Natalia, hopes to never know. Her husband was drafted. It's hard to bear her son's choice. When Yura told me he was going to, it was very hard for me to accept it because I understand that anything could happen there. Every mother probably feels it when she sends her children. It is scary to send your husband, but there is nothing worse than to send your child. Are you afraid? Yes. Yes, like it's normal to be afraid. And uh, um, afraid uh, that um, I could die, I could become like uh, with like became disabled, it's still better than be under occupation. A lot of guys younger than me, and like, just like giving me goosebumps about uh, that I'm still living. Before he leaves this all for the front, he visits the Wall of Heroes and the faces of thousands of Ukrainians killed fighting Russia. Like 23 years old. Look at this. It's 20 years old. 24. We do not afraid anymore because uh, it's kind of we have nothing to lose because like if uh, if we will lose this war, we will lose like everything, our freedom, our country, our lives. For Yura, that means there is no longer fear, only reverence for those whose sacrifice preceded his own. For the PBS NewsHour, I'm Nick Schifrin. A Russian-American dual citizen who's been living and working in Los Angeles has been detained in Russia, accused of treason and of fundraising for Ukraine. 33-year-old Ksenia Karolina was in Russia visiting her family when she was arrested. And now her boyfriend is pleading for help. And Chris Van Yerden joins us now. Thank you for being with us. And Chris, first, tell us about Ksenia. What do you want the world to know about her? 
that's he's a normal person. That's his kind, loving, funny, loved by all her friends. Everyone that meets her wants more of Ksenia. She is she's she's the light that walks into the room. Everyone wants her attention. She's happy. She has so much life in her. That's Ksenia. Why did she decide to travel to Russia? And was she at all concerned that something like this might ha happen, given Moscow's practice of detaining foreign citizens and Russian dual citizens? The reason, the reason was she, she wanted to go see her family, especially the grandparents. Um, she hasn't been home since pre-COVID, and she really, she was, she told me, she said, I, I, I'm afraid I might lose my grandparents. They're very old, and I want to go see them. She was not concerned at all. Not at all, not even a little bit. I was, and uh, I made it clear to her. I said, I don't think it's a good idea to go, but she convinced me that, no, I mean, she's Russian, and there's no bombs dropping in Russia, like I'm safe, and she told me that Yekaterinburg is so far in the middle of nowhere that she has nothing to worry about. And she honestly had, she didn't look like she had fear, And um, but then again, she doesn't watch the news. I know she doesn't follow the news. So I don't think she knew what she was doing. At first, as I understand it, her detention was brief. Russian authorities took her cell phone and then they released her. And then what happened? And she went home and um, she was home for three weeks. And two days before the, the 27th, January 27th, when I we spoke to her again like every other day. I said, I, I, what's happening? Like, you're flying in two days to come back to back to me. And she said, oh, baby, it's, it's, it's all over. Like, they phoned me and said, I can come and pick up my phone in an hour. Um, I just need to go and sign some stuff. And she honestly was, she seemed so relieved that she can finally just breathe. And that was the last I spoke to her. Um, I haven't heard from her then. She now faces up to 20 years in a Russian prison for the alleged crime of donating $50 uh, to a charity that supports Ukraine. When you think about that potential sentence, what goes through your mind? I, I'm trying not to think about it, but um, knowing Ksenia, knowing how much life she has, she has you know, and how, knowing how she lives it day to day, I can honestly not imagine. I cannot, I cannot believe it. I'm sure you've seen this video released by the FSB purportedly showing Ksenia being led blindfolded and having cuffs put on her. What do you know about her well-being right now? Um, she wrote me a letter two days ago. She wrote me a letter. I received a letter from her two days ago. Um, she's... Uh, She's 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 safe. She's um, she's locked up with two two women and um, kind people. She say, but that's what she say about everyone. She um, she was a little sick apparently, and she had a bad cough. But that cough is going away. Um, one moment she's in good spirits and she believes she'll come out and see me soon, and one moment she tells herself that she might be in there for life. Um, I just know she's safe. She, 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 she told me I'm safe. Have you or her family heard anything from U.S. officials? I spoke to the U.S. State Department. Um, 
no one can tell me anything because it's confidential and they need to get letters to Ksenia to sign in, in order for them to speak to me. And they said they will do that and asked when and they had no answer for me. That's all. That's all they said to me. Well, Chris Van Yerden, we certainly wish the best for Ksenia and for you and her family. Thank you for being with us. Thank you so much. This PBS NewsHour podcast is supported in part by Dana-Farber Cancer Institute. Life sustains itself by cell division. So does cancer. Breast cancer cells multiply faster because of CDK4-6 proteins. But what if we could block those proteins and stop runaway cell division? To that end, Dana-Farber laid the foundation for CDK4-6 inhibitors, drugs designed to treat many advanced breast cancers. Dana-Farber keeps finding new ways to outmaneuver cancer. Learn more at DanaFarber.org slash everywhere. A new investigation looks at the disturbing world of so-called kidfluencers and the moms who run their accounts. One in three preteens say being an influencer is a career goal, but the reality poses serious risks to underage girls. Stephanie Sai looks at those concerns. Instagram doesn't allow children younger than 13 to have their own accounts, so what we're seeing is parents of kidfluencers set up and manage these accounts. Posting content of girls can be lucrative. Instagram makes it possible to have paid monthly subscribers. And kids' apparel brands will pay thousands of dollars for a single post of a kid modeling, say, their dance leotards. But what might seem like innocent photos to a mom may read differently to a man or a pedophile. New York Times reporter Michael Keller analyzed data from 5,000 of these mom-run accounts as part of a New York Times investigation and joins me now. Michael, thank you for being here. I mean, the headline of your report really sums up the risk. A marketplace of girl influencers managed by moms and stalked by men. What did you find about how prolific these accounts are and why so many moms are into this? My colleague Jennifer Valentino DeVries and I wanted to look into this world of child influencers. And as you said, they often are too young to have accounts of their own, and so they're run by their parents. They got into them for a variety of reasons. There was a range from uh, dancers and gymnasts who wanted to get free or discounted leotards in exchange for uh, photos, modeling the apparel. Um, a lot of parents said that uh, social media was the way they could assure a good digital resume for their child's future and maybe even help pay for college or gain opportunities working with sought-after choreographers. Um, on the more extreme end, your aspiring models, uh, some had their own subscriptions, both on Instagram, where they would charge up to $20 a month for uh, more photos or uh, chat sessions with the child, um, or on other platforms where the monthly cost went as high as $250. So your report also found that a lot of the followers of these accounts are men. Are, are they driving these accounts' popularity and their profits? So we did an analysis looking at the follower size of these accounts and the percentage of men in that audience and did find a correlation that as the audiences got larger, there were more men in them. Now, some parents and pretty much 
all the parents we spoke to said that men and following them and posting inappropriately was a really big problem. Some of them said that the first thing they did when they woke up in the morning was block followers. And the last thing they did before they went to bed was block followers. Um, they often post inappropriate or um, even proposition the girls in the comments below the photos. Uh, they do, do block them, as I said, um, but a lot of them ran into issues where if they blocked too many, Instagram would start limiting their ability to either follow new accounts or to block even more. One parent said, I, I can't believe this, I've reached my limit for the day of blocking creepy men. Michael, I just want to show our viewers an example of what you're talking about. The New York Times and your investigation doesn't show the actual post, but you describe what the post showed. A nine-year-old in a golden bikini lounging on a towel, and then you show the comments section full of sexually suggestive remarks. But Michael, it doesn't stop at the comments in every case. You describe a world in which the girls are sucked in to this sort of internet underworld of sexual predation. Right. And that was what was truly disturbing in what we found. Uh, beyond the suggestive or, or predatory comments, some parents actually received threats from some of the online. Um, they would reach out and accuse them of uh, exploiting their child and threatening to contact their school or their family and friends and seemingly expose them. Because um, it is worth noting that in, you know, photos of children uh, in dance conventions are normal within that context. Um, but within the context of the internet, people bring to them, in some cases, um, their own uh, skewed points of view. And so these men were trying to, uh, seemingly with threats of blackmail, um, cause a lot of actual harm to the families. So it occurs to me, Michael, that this is not just an investigation into risks that girls are taking online, but a story about parents who are making the decision to put their girls at potential risk of ogling at the very least. What is the biggest takeaway for moms who are thinking of letting their daughters become influencers? So as we said, you know, Instagram does allow parents to run these accounts for them, even when they're below 13. But what we found was that it is very hard to do so in a safe way, um, and that it may take hours every day of blocking um, creepy or possibly predatory men from interacting um, with the account. And the real-life threats that this could um, you know, lead to, maybe we heard stories of strange packages showing up at people's doors. Um, and could go from the online world into real life and affect your family was a really uh, strong takeaway for me. Michael Keller with The New York Times, thank you for joining the NewsHour. Thank you so much. Tomorrow, South Carolinians head to the polls in that state's Republican primary race. South Carolina is often seen as a bellwether with its first in the South contest. And Nikki Haley has spent more money and time on the ground in her home state than former President Trump. But as Lisa Desjardins reports, it's Mr. Trump that seems to maintain a strong hold on the electorate there. 
On our home turf this week, former Governor Nikki Haley said she's America's last chance at normalcy. No drama, no vendettas, just results and getting work done for the American people. And the only candidate that can beat President Joe Biden. As much as we want to turn our country around, we can't do that if we don't win. And Donald Trump can't win a general election. In Sumter, a central South Carolina city known for its nearby Air Force base, Haley's words resonated with Vietnam and Gulf War veteran Fred Parent. Trump's about himself, you know, and that's not the way uh, a uh, public worker should be. It should be about the whole country, and he is a worker. He works for us. And with longtime Republican Tina Martinez. The country's in a place where we need stability, we need a little bit of a sure thing. Um, the American dream is kind of pretty much on life support. I didn't think I'd ever be voting for a woman for president. I want her to see that it's possible for her, especially as a um, minority woman as well. But Haley trails Trump here by a chasm of 30 points on average, with Trump routinely polling at 60 percent and higher. You're not supposed to lose your home state. Shouldn't happen anyway. And she's losing it big, big. I mean, really, uh, I said Big Lee and Big Lee. A lot is at stake for Haley in this first in the South primary. One reason it's a good predictor is because of the Super Tuesday primaries that come pretty quickly afterwards. And a lot of those primaries are in the South. Gibbs Knotts is a professor of political science at the College of Charleston. He says South Carolina is a bellwether, known for having voted for the party's eventual nominee nearly every time for the past 40 years. It's not necessarily that South Carolina's just gotten really lucky. We think it's actually because uh, South Carolina is a pretty good predictor based on the representativeness of the Republican voter here. But earlier this week, Haley said she's not quitting. When the country's future is on the line, you don't drop out. You keep fighting. South Carolina will vote on Saturday. But on Sunday, I'll still be running for president. Still, the independent voters that pulled Haley closer to Trump, particularly in New Hampshire, are few and far between in South Carolina, with the most conservative electorate yet. Call on his name. Northwest in the state's foothills, Pastor Todd Black says he doesn't tell his congregation how to vote, that they already agree on the candidate and issues. How many of you are tired of going to the grocery store, spending $100 and lucky to come out with two little bags, right? Yeah. Black says he supports Trump because the former president's policies on social issues like abortion and religious freedom more closely align with his, even if Trump himself isn't perfect. If he says he is a Christian, that's all I can go by. But let me say this. We're not electing a pastor. We're electing the president of the United States. And the more that they come at him with all of this stuff, when people see that, they're saying, you know what? If they're trying to take him down like this and take away his rights, then they may come after me. Trump supporter Brian Weinbrenner is in church leadership, and he's proud of his day job at the local BMW manufacturing plant. We build cars for the whole world. Um, I like the fact that we build in America, and I like um, his stance on um, if you want to come to our country as, as um, a person, then you do it the right way. New Hampshire is for Trump. South Carolina is too. We'll and it's Trump that gained the endorsement of nearly all of the top South Carolina elected Republicans, including Governor Henry McMaster and State Senators Lindsey Graham and Tim Scott. 
And Knotts says Haley angered some power players in the state house during her six years as South Carolina governor. She really fought against the good old boy network, and one of the things she did was made made sure that people had to, you, know, you couldn't just voice vote on something. There had to be a record, and so she wanted to hold legislators more accountable. The downside to that, of course, is that she didn't, she made some enemies, you know, when you're going in and trying to change the system. But shoe store owner Zoe Owen says that anti-establishment approach is what attracted her to Haley years ago. It was just very exciting. It was a new day because here we had a person completely from the outside, not a political class, coming in. The state of South Carolina, I have so much faith in us. And we know Nikki Haley. And she is going to get rid of the extremism that's in Washington right now. She's going to make us normal again. <laughs> Owen campaigned for then state representative Haley during her governor's race and says former President Trump's tariffs on China impacted her business directly. It was not good for the shoe business. Um, I question whether it was good for America. You know, Donald Trump's a big business guy. I mean, but he, so he doesn't have the pulse on what it really feels like if you don't sell a shoe, you don't eat spaghetti on Monday, you eat beans on Monday. Still, Trump's appeal runs strong through the state with voters who say he's just like them. He's not somebody that can be puppeted around, which we see a lot in politics. So I want somebody to stand in my place because, you know, we don't have a voice in Washington um, as much as he does. The state has its first chance in generations to see a South Carolinian as a presidential nominee. But Trump hopes to make history instead by convincing voters here that he's more like them than one of their own. For the PBS NewsHour, I'm Lisa Desjardins. Next week, Michigan primary voters may send a warning signal to President Joe Biden. From the economy to abortion rights to the war in Gaza, the issues animating Democratic voters continue to shift in the lead up to the 2024 election. Our White House correspondent Laura Barone Lopez joins me now for the latest. So, Laura, it's fair to say President Biden has an enthusiasm gap among some in his base. Who are the voters that he's having the most trouble with right now? He's having a lot of trouble with young voters and voters of color on that. And I spoke to Nancy Zadunkowitz, who is a Democratic pollster with Zeta A Research. And she recently conducted focus groups with Latino voters, black voters, and moderate Republicans. And especially among Latino voters, she said that there was a Hispanic woman in that group who questioned the president's message on the economy specifically, that they weren't happy when they heard the president uh, compare U.S. inflation rates to other countries' inflation rates, trying to present what they thought was too rosy of a picture in terms of U.S. economy. Mm -hmm. And ultimately, Nancy Zadunkowitz said that what Democrats have is a messenger problem. This might be a sort of reverse coattails um, kind of election where we see that statewide Democrats and congressional Democrats are carrying the president across the line. I can't tell you a single state right now where I've surveyed where a statewide Democrat was not more popular and exceeding the vote share of the president. 
Zdankowicz warned that this is a real problem for Democrats and it's not something that they can wish away. So the economy remains a challenging issue, but where is the president seeing any traction? What issues and with what voters? As I mentioned, Amna Nancy Zdankowicz spoke to uh, moderate Republicans as well. And so in that focus group, they found that when they presented the contrast between President Biden and former President Donald Trump, that a lot of those moderate Republicans started to move more towards President Biden, specifically on issues like democracy, January 6th, and on abortion. Um, that abortion, she said, is the second most important issue that they're hearing from a lot of voters across the board, not just moderate Republicans. The two fixes that Democrats could have for that, she said, is that President Biden needs to be very clear about his platform for a second term and also get more surrogates out there that could boost his message. Let me ask you about this effort we're seeing underway in, in Michigan, specifically ahead of Tuesday's Democratic presidential primary. There's a movement there to encourage people to vote uncommitted. What do we need to understand about that? That uncommitted movement is being led by Democratic activists and Democratic local electeds in the state of Michigan. And it's really a last-minute movement, Amna, born out of frustration with the president's response to Gaza. I spoke with Leila Alabed, who is the sister of Congresswoman Rashida Tlaib, a Democrat in Michigan, the only Palestinian member of Congress. And uh, Leila is the campaign manager for this Listen to Michigan movement. She said Muslim and Arab voters in Michigan feel extremely let down by the president because of his response to the Israel-Gaza war, and that the uncommitted movement is all about sending a message to President Biden. We are solely focused on the primary in order to send that message to Joe Biden that if he doesn't listen to his core constituency, the 80% of Democrats that support a permanent ceasefire that he's going to be in trouble come November. I don't want to be in another position where I am trying to choose between the lesser of two evils. Leila Elabed said that uh, she thinks that right now President Biden is taking Muslim and Arab voters who were key in his win in 2020 for granted. And that same frustration about the president's response to Israel Gaza Amna is something that is a big problem for him also with young voters. So when it comes to those young voters, other key members of that coalition that got him to the White House, how is President Biden addressing some of that dissatisfaction? Right now, President Biden's campaign's theory of the case is that the more that they contrast him against former President Donald Trump on policy across the board, that they think that voters will start to come home, that that keep all those elements of his coalition will ultimately vote for him, that some of them just aren't paying attention yet. Uh, one key example of that was just this week, Amna, when the president announced that he would forgive $1.2 in student loan debt for more than 150,000 borrowers. And when he was announcing that, he said that he had to go this route, which was a more piecemeal route that he wanted than he wanted to initially, because of the fact that when he was trying to forgive student loan debt for tens of millions of borrowers, that Republicans ended up uh, fighting that and that the Supreme Court, which has a conservative majority, blocked it. And so he's really trying to strike that contrast on student loan debt, on abortion, on a variety of other issues with Republicans writ large. Laura Barone-Lopez with the latest on President Biden's re-election campaign. Laura, thank you. Thank you.
As Ukraine marks two years of war with Russia, American support for aid in the country, to the country rather, is wavering along partisan battle lines. On that and the other political stories shaping the week, we turn now to the analysis of Brooks and Capehart. That is New York Times columnist David Brooks and Jonathan Capehart, associate editor for the Washington Post. Great to see you both. Yeah, nice to see you. Let's start with Ukraine. Uh, Russia's war, David, as you know, now moving into its third year there. Russia's clearly gaining momentum on the battlefield. Lawmakers here in the U.S. are unable to move through aid. Mr. Trump is now telling Republicans not to back that aid. If the Ukraine war was supposed to be this test, right, of Western democracies coming together, showing their strength against a rising autocracy, are we failing that test? Uh, well, we're on the verge of it. You know, if you had told me two years ago that uh, Europe would be united and strong and in support, even though they were so dependent on Russian energy, and that we'd be the faltering ones, and the, that the faltering ones within our country were Republicans, <laughs> wouldn't have believed you. Didn't see that coming. It seemed like it was a, universally accepted that defending Ukraine was in our national interest. Even today, 74% of Americans think defending Ukraine is in our national interest. And yet the president, or the ex-president, um, said no, and the speaker apparently follows him. Uh, and to be fair, uh, you know, in retrospect, we should have been clearer that the Russian strategy in war is to go on forever and ever, and they're willing to sacrifice casualties that would destroy most other nations. Mm -hmm. They did it in the Napoleonic Wars. They did it in World War II. They're doing it in Ukraine. And we should have been clear the time wasn't on our side. And the Biden administration was undoubtedly too slow to get the weapon systems. They gave them enough not to lose, but not enough to win. But it's the small rump isolationist majority, the J.D. Vance's of the world, that threatened to really send the world into turmoil. And they say, oh, no, we need to focus on China and Asia. Well, talk to the Chinese, talk to the Taiwanese. What are they worried about? They're worried about Ukraine losing. And so this is the doorstep to chaos. And a large part of the Republican Party doesn't care. Jonathan, to David's point there, House Speaker Johnson is listening to former President Trump here, right? But he's also, he's facing a looming government shutdown. He's trying to oversee one of the smallest House majorities in congressional history. Is Ukraine aid top of his priority list right now? No, top of his priority list, Speaker Johnson's priority list, is remaining Speaker. I mean, we are right back where we were with Speaker McCarthy. Only the difference between Speaker McCarthy and Speaker Johnson is, and I can't believe I'm saying this, Speaker McCarthy knew what he was doing. He could actually, he could govern haphazardly and haltingly, but he, he could govern. He kept the government from shutting down. Mm -hmm. Speaker Johnson has Ukraine, Ukraine aid, which is vital to, as David was talking about, vital to the national interest. He's got to get through two funding deadlines, March 1st and March 8th. There's an immigration bill that he says, he, he, his own, that he wants to get through after rejecting the hard-fought bipartisan Senate immigration bill, um, th this is a person who is woefully unprepared and inadequate for the task that faces him. And when it comes to this, this you know, battle between democracy and autocracy, where it is vital that Ukraine win, if they do not win, we will, we will be able to look back and point the finger right at Speaker Johnson because it's Speaker Johnson who is the one who's getting in the way of something happening on multiple fronts. You agree with that, David? Yeah, I'm, I'm a little ho hopeful that something will get passed. There are a bunch of different ways you can do it. They, they're thinking of breaking all the different aid pieces apart. Mm -hmm. There's this thing called the discharge position, or if you get a majority of House members signing this petition, you can get a vote on something. You still need a number of Republicans. You need to get a that number of Republicans. But if it's saving democracy, I 
think there'd be enough. You don't have to get a lot of Republicans. You just got to get a few, and then you can evade the speaker and get a vote. And it, if it got a vote, it would pass for sure. Hope springs eternal. I'll take that. I do want to ask about the other issue raised on, on immigration in particular, and as it relates to President Biden and his reelection campaign, we heard Laura Brown Lopez's reporting there on some weakening uh, among the Biden coalition and core groups there. And we know, David, that President Biden is now weighing some very harsh immigration tactics through executive action at the U.S. southern border, reminiscent really of some Trump-era policies. So does it make it harder for the president as a candidate to draw a bright line between himself and his likely general election opponent, former President Trump, when he's coming out with some of the same policies. Yeah, on this issue, uh, Joe Biden does not want to draw a bright line. The country is with Donald Trump. You know, if you ask who do you approve on different issues, on general competency, Trump is up by like 12 points. On who can handle the economy better, Trump is up by 25. On immigration, he's up by 39 points. Mm -hmm. And so this is an issue where you want to fudge that line. And just on the merits, you know, I'm as pro-immigration as I think it's possible to be, but our asylum system is meant for people seeking asylum, escaping repression. And a lot of the people coming across the border are coming across the border for a lot of the reasons, you know, my ancestors came across. They want economic opportunity. But that's not asylum. And so the system is somewhat broken down, and Biden is right to do something, and politically, I do think his survival depends on it. Do these kinds of moves, Jonathan, further alienate members of that Biden coalition that helped get him to the White House in the first place? Well, I mean, that you sort of answer the question. Yes, it, it, it does further alienate. But, you know, I mean, I, I have to agree with David on this, that immigration is an, is an issue that the president has to fudge this line. Um, but what I also think he has um, going for him is he gets to say, the Republicans made me do this. There was a bipartisan Senate immigration bill that um, never got a vote. I was in on the negotiations. They never gave us a vote. And so we have to do something. And, you know, the election of Tom Suozzi in uh, on Long Island, gosh, was that a week and a half ago now, almost, almost two weeks ago, was a signal of how salient the immigration issue is. Meanwhile, David, here is what Mr. Biden could be up against. Uh, from the annual Conservative Political Action Conference, or CPAC as it's known, um, there was a moment when a far-right conservative uh, commentator, a man named Jack Posobiec, uh, took to the stage. He was holding up a cross, and he said this. Welcome to the end of democracy. <laughs> we are here to overthrow it completely. We didn't get all the way there on January 6th, but we will, we, we will endeavor to, forget, to get rid of it and replace it with, with this right here. He's holding up a cross there, as he says, replace it with this. This was uh, met with cheers from the crowd there. But, David, how do you look at that? Was that, was that meant to be a joke? Yeah, it's meant to be. I mean, there's a game. Uh, right-wing commentators of that sort play. They, get, they say something that offends the left, and then they could say, oh, the left hates me, uh, and then they get popular in their own crowd, and so it's a form of performance art to shock the bourgeoisie. And I, I take it with utmost cynicism that they are just trying to get attention, and this kind of humor is shock the left, and then the, I've owned the libs. So I, I think it's, it's like crass, stupid. Do I think it represents the thousands of Trump voters I've interviewed? No, none of them would talk like this. They're all serious people who have serious views that I happen to disagree with, but they're not like what that kind of guy at CPAC. Jonathan, what do you make of that? Um, this is one lib who's shocked. <laughs> um, and I don't, think, I don't think that those types of things are funny. And I don't think they're funny in the context of what we're living through right now. 
Alabama Supreme Court and what it did on IVF, um, Supreme Court overturning Dobbs, um, a, a House speaker who's enthralled to a former president who is preventing him from doing anything that would help move the country forward on a whole host of issues. And I've been around Washington long enough to remember that that is the same crowd that was railing against, oh my God, Sharia law is coming to the United States. You know, it's a religious theocracy taking over the American government. But it's okay if it's Christian nationalism, or let's just be more blunt about it, white Christian nationalism. I'd, I take what they say there at CPAC, even though it is sort of a, a, a Looney Tunes cafe, I, but I take them seriously because their guy is the front runner for the Republican nomination for president and, and has a 50-50 chance of being the president. So that joke can become reality. So let's take a quick look at the context in which this is unfolding. Here's a look at the delegate count right now for former President Trump and the lone challenger uh, to him for the Republican presidential nomination, that is uh, former Ambassador Nikki Haley. We see there Mr. Trump has 63 delegates to Nikki Haley's 17. They need 1215. One of them needs 1215 to clinch the nomination. David, the South Carolina primary is tomorrow. What, what are you watching for? What do you believe will happen? Yeah, I'll be curious to see if Haley can climb up to, to the 40s. Can get, I think her campaign has said that 42 constitutes success for them. Uh, and that would be a nice lift. It would make her feel good. And she can go on Super Tuesday and then get crushed and then uh, drop out of the race. <laughs> but either way, we know how the story ends. It ends with her dropping out of the race. Jonathan, how are you looking at this? Um, look, I go back to the great James Pindle who said they don't get out because they lose, they get out because they're broke. She's got the money, she'll, she'll lose South Carolina, she'll go to Super Tuesday, she'll, as David says, she'll get crushed there. But I do think, in the grand scheme of things, she is doing a service to the party and to the country by finally speaking truth about Donald Trump and what he means for the Republican Party, but also what he means for the country and for democracy writ large. Jonathan Capehart, David Brooks, always great to see you both. Thank you so much. Thank you. And as always, there's more online, including a look at the last two years of the Ukraine war and its wider repercussions on politics, global security, and stability in the region. That's on our new half-hour show, PBS News Weekly. That's now on our YouTube channel. And be sure to tune into Washington Week with The Atlantic tonight on PBS. Moderator Jeffrey Goldberg and his panel will discuss the war in Ukraine entering a third year as critical U.S. aid is stalled in Congress. And tune in tomorrow to PBS News Weekend. Republican primary voters head to the polls in South Carolina as Donald Trump continues to carve a path to the nomination. And that is the news hour for tonight. I'm Amna Nawaz. And I'm Jeff Bennett. Have a good evening and a great weekend.